My name's Brenda. Um, I'll be bringing a sermon reading to you this morning, and it's from Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks, Brenda, and good morning, everybody. My name is Dan. If I've not met you before, I've been at this church for a little while now, and it's my pleasure today to bring to us Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 to 20. It would be helpful to have it in front of you for the next little while, although I would say if you're a Christian, if you've been hanging around churches for a little while, this is quite possibly a passage that you're familiar with. And the idea that's in the middle of it, it's called the Great Commission. People often, you know, it's a, now it's a serious Bible passage when it gets its own name. And so people call this one the Great Commission. And smack in the heart of it is this idea of going and making disciples. Jesus tells his disciples to go and make more disciples. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. Just first up, it's worth asking that question. How do you feel about that? Maybe for some of you it raises all sorts of positive emotions and you get fired up and you go, yes. I've been on about this for years. Maybe you're a sort of natural or gifted evangelist who naturally and enthusiastically shares your faith with other people whenever you encounter them. So maybe when you read those verses, that, or the ones that Brendan just read to us a minute ago, you were filled with optimism and hope. Or maybe you were once, but not so much anymore. Maybe uh, you've lost the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed optimism of youth, and so when you read those passages now, you experience some more negative emotions. Maybe you feel some guilt. You think, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be making disciples, but look, if I'm honest with you, I don't know when I last made one. <laughs> Maybe that's how you feel. You feel that you know what you're supposed to do, but you think you're doing a poor job of it, perhaps. Maybe uh, you feel overwhelmed because you look at the culture right now and the people around you, the kinds of people that you work with or live in a street with or even in your own family, and you think, look, Trying to make disciples out of a culture like that is, is perhaps as difficult as trying to make a raincoat out of paper, and you think this is just hard work and it's overwhelming. Or maybe even you experience frustration because you think, well, I'm doing my part, but so-and-so around me in the church or wherever isn't quite as on board as I would like them to be. However you feel when you come to this passage, I just want to say a couple of things. First of all, let's try and leave all of that baggage at the door. For a couple of minutes, because when you come to a passage that you're familiar with and that you've read, maybe it's helpful sometimes just to go back to it and work out what it's actually saying. Because I would hope that as we do that this morning, that instead of feeling here more weighed down by another burden that we think we have to carry, we might actually leave here uh, inspired and empowered by these verses. So I'm going to pray that, that would be the case. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for all that we have celebrated in these recent weeks, your life and death and resurrection. And as we come to this passage today, which, uh, which talks about the mission that you have given us as we wait for your return, we pray that you would help us to understand the task before us and the power within us as we do it. And we pray that 
In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever been so excited about something that you could just not stop talking about. If you've ever experienced that, maybe it's a product or a movie or something. Uh, back in 2003, and, and as I tell this story, I'm, I'm aware that some of you who previously thought I was a rational person, I'm just about to plummet in your estimates. But back in 2003, I was dating my now wife, Sally. I was living in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney. She was living in the northern beaches of Sydney. If you know your Sydney geography, that's a couple of good hours of traffic between those two places. I was working in a place called Mulgrave, which is nowhere near either of them. And, uh, and I spent a lot of time driving in that year. Driving to see her, driving to work, driving home, uh, driving to pick her up and take her back to where I lived and, and see my friends and then take her back home and then come back home myself. And I was worn out because on top of that I was working, I was playing sport and doing a bunch of other things. And so when I heard some ads on the radio for a product uh, called Natural Potentiated Bee Pollen, which was promising... <laughs> See, I, I'm going to alienate, alienate everybody here because some of you thought, man, I can't believe you fell for this. Others of you are, others of you are on it. Right? And so I, <laughs> anyway, it was promising energy. Energy reserves that would sort of buoy me. And I uh, heard it and I thought, that is exactly what I need. I was in, uh, you know, I was, I was worn out. I phoned up, I ordered... Three months supply, maybe. <laughs> and I started, it was a deal. I started, popping, I started popping these pills and I became a believer. And to be quite honest with you, I, I still don't know if it was a placebo or not, but I felt superhuman. Um, I, I didn't need to drink as much coffee as I previously did. I continued to sleep minimally. I felt like I'd discovered the fountain of youth. Uh, I wondered why anyone in the world would still be sleeping eight hours when you could simply pop a couple of capsules of people and, uh, and live on far less than that. And I thought that I had developed superpowers. And so I started telling everybody about it. I literally did. And I mean everyone. My friends mocked me for it. I started giving away jars of the stuff. <laughs> you don't believe me, you try it. I even remember ordering some soap made of it, actually, in the hope that uh, I would be able to absorb it through my skin. Now, at risk, as I said before, of alienating those who might still be believers um, in this stuff, and I've got to tell you, in preparing this sermon, I thought, you know, maybe I should give it another go. Because <laughs> I could do with a bit of that. Um, I stopped using it in the end, and I've got to say, in 2004, the year after, I think 12 months' worth of sleep deprivation caught up with me. And for the first six months of that year, I remember having just about every illness under the sun, and, um, and I think suffering for my lifestyle. I'm no longer a user of natural bee pollen, but this, um, but this served me as an example of one time in my life where I was desperate to share something that I thought was life-changing. Have you ever had something like that? And here is the challenging question, was it Jesus? Was it Jesus? Have you ever been so sold out on Jesus that you have felt the need to share Jesus with your family, with your friends, uh, with your workmates, with the strangers that you meet, with the people that you play sport with? Have you ever been so passionate about your faith that you're actually prepared to be mocked for it, as I was, for promoting bee pollen? Now, I don't ask that question to embarrass or convict you. As I ask the question, I'm conscious myself of the, the honest answer within my own heart. I'm not asking for that reason. I'm simply wanting us to recognise that for many of us, this does not come as naturally as we might like it to. It doesn't come as easily, easily as we would want it to. 
If you're here today, though, as a follower of Jesus, someone who knows that he gave his life for you on the cross to deal with your sin, as we remembered last week, then I know that you want other people to know that. Of course you do. Of course you want others to know that. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have celebrated his resurrection as we did last year and known that you yourself have received life from the dead, then I know that you want people to know that. Of course you do. You know that you were dead, you know that you are now alive, you know that all of your sin, past, present and future has been dealt with on the cross, that there is nothing, even the grave itself, that can stand between you and God. You want other people to know that. But our fears, our concerns, our feelings of inadequacy, they all hold us back, if we're honest. And we can even begin to feel like failures, I would say, in this mission of evangelism and sharing our faith. So putting all that on the table recognizing that that is how many of us feel and how we want to be, but how we also know that we're not, then I want us to come to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now, a little bit of brief context, just in case you've been asleep for two weeks and you missed Easter. The earlier part of this chapter deals with the resurrection of Jesus. So if you look back, we won't really now, but at the first ten verses of this chapter, you read that the women who went to the tomb found it empty, They were met by angels who told them that he has risen. They were the words that changed everything. Then they meet Jesus, whose appearance convinces them that he really is alive. And he tells them to go tell the other disciples to meet him in Galilee, which is what happens in verse 16. Now, there's a little story that happened in the middle there in chapter 28 about about the guards and things. But verse 16 sort of picks up from verse 10. So... The disciples went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And it's strange to read... Sorry if that read is too hard to read on the screen. It's strange to read that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. In the presence of the risen Jesus, the one they'd seen dead, now alive, some of them doubted. The word for doubt there isn't a word that gets used a lot in the New Testament. I discovered there's only two places... It doesn't mean that they just flat out refuse to believe, that kind of doubter. What it means is that they wavered in their belief. They were struggling to believe, wanting to believe, but having a hard time believing. And I would say, um, just in passing, that that should encourage us maybe on two levels. As John talked about last week, first of all, if you are trying to make up a story about the resurrection and if you're wanting it to be believable, you probably wouldn't include witnesses who themselves were struggling to believe. You probably wouldn't have the key people who met Jesus going, but actually they were still doubting. So I'd say this points us to the truth of the passage. But secondly, if you ever find yourself in that zone of, I know I believe this, but I also experience that wavering uncertainty at times, that wrestle in my own soul, well then you're in good company. Because the disciples of Jesus, who witnessed him physically having risen from the dead, experienced that. Uh, And yet, the dominant response of the disciples there is worship. Why is it worship? Because Jesus has just proven that he is the Messiah, he is the king of the universe, he has defeated death itself, which then leads into the next verses. So on the mountain... Jesus gives his disciples these final instructions, the Great Commission, if you want. And it comes as a kind of sandwich or a burger, I'm going to refer to it as. And if you're using the kids' sheet, you can see that there is a burger there 
to help us. Now, there's some meat in the middle of it, but it is held together like a good burger by some critical... I'm sorry if I'm making you hungry. By some critical <laughs> bread bits on the outside. See, so the top of the burger, I would say, is verse 17. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So that's the first part of the burger. Jesus has the authority to send his disciples on this mission. Why? Because, as the angels told the women a few verses earlier, he has risen. The person who has conquered death itself and come back from the grave has the authority to ask the disciples to do this. The mission of the church that we're just about to look at isn't something that we've come up with on our own to try and kill time with until Jesus returns. It is the mission that Jesus himself has given us. King Jesus has given us this, and he has the authority to do it. And the authority comes, I would say, from the resurrection in this passage. Jesus has the authority to send us and his disciples on this mission because he has come through death itself and proven that he is the Son of God. Now, if you flick forward, I'm going to drop into Acts a couple of times today. You probably don't need to look it up. But if you were to flick forward to Acts chapter 4, from here, you start to see the disciples playing this out. And the heat is on for them. They've been arrested for the first time, Peter and John, for beginning this mission, mission, sharing the gospel of Jesus, making disciples. And they get arrested for it, but then they offer to let them go on the condition that they would remain silent. Stop speaking about it and we're going to let you go. But Peter and John, what do they say? They reply, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. Him being Jesus. God, you be the judges. It's them recognizing the exact thing that Jesus said to them on that mountain. He has all authority in giving them this task. Do you ever feel like it is not acceptable in our culture to hold the beliefs that you do or share them? My guess is that you do feel that. There are times in which you think, oh man, I don't even think I'm allowed to believe this anymore, let alone say it. I would say and maybe you'd agree with me if you've been around a little while, I think it's less popular um, and less comfortable to be a Christian in, our, in a Western society, in, even in Sydney 2022, than it was 20-odd years ago. The sense is that it's okay to be a Christian, that's okay, as long as you don't talk about it, or as long as, in particular, you don't hold some various sub-beliefs that follow from your faith. And I would say that there's this sort of veiled idea, like there was overtly for Peter and John, you can hold your beliefs, but don't talk about them. Keep them to yourself. Uh, but Peter and John had nothing of it. Why? Because they answered to a higher authority, Jesus, who said, all authority on heaven and earth belongs to him. And as we, as a church, set about that mission, well, we set about, we continue the mission of the church for the last 2,000 years, we do so knowing that we are acting on the authority of someone who has all authority. Now pay attention to those alls, because you'll notice that a few of them show up in this passage. Now for the early church, that created some significant issues. Um, their allegiance to Jesus put them in conflict with other authorities, and that has been the story of the people of God for a very long time. Maybe not so much in the West, but maybe that's the period that we're entering back into. Um, interestingly, as a church, we just read the story of Daniel a couple of weeks or a month or so back, and he faced that same challenge. Who will he obey? 
Who will his allegiance be to? Will it be to the Babylonian rulers who are putting a new set of instructions on him, or will he remain faithful to God? We know the answer. Um, we may not face that kind of overt, overt threat right now. Who knows? We may within our lifetimes. But either way, we can know that we have authority to do this mission because the authority comes from the risen Jesus. And he says that is all authority. All authority in heaven and earth. And I think that that is critical before you get to the meat of the sandwich or the burger, which comes in verse 18 and a part of 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So you know that Jesus' authority is crucial because he continues with this word, therefore. In other words, it immediately follows. Jesus has this authority and therefore he can give us this task. What's the task? Make disciples, not converts, not believers, not a pile of people who you can manage to drag along to church with you or hustle into your youth group or your crew group at church, not a bunch of people who are prepared to follow a bunch of rules, um, not a group of people who are prepared to tick Christian on the next census that we have, disciples or apprentices even to Jesus, people who encounter the risen Jesus through the church and who are taught to observe all that he did and said and asked and baptising them into the faith. Now that's the mission if you choose to accept it, to use the words of that great TV show. Or actually to reference another movie that I've watched way too many times and more times than I would like to admit, The Blues Brothers. In The Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood famously say, we're on a mission, a mission from God. Who's seen the movie? Oh, that's probably right. Now, their, their mission, if you remember the movie, their mission uh, is a noble one in a sense. They're trying to put this blues band back together in order that they can prevent this orphanage from closing down where they had grown up. But in the end, they claim it's a mission from God, and it may be a noble and a virtuous one, but it seems really that they act on their own authority, under their own steam, and compared to this mission that we're talking about here, it's this Blues Brothers mission is a very small one. It's not a big dream. Not compared to this, make disciples of all nations. So who are these disciples that we're supposed to be making? They are people from all nations, which if you go back in the Bible, interestingly, was promised way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, where God first appears to Abraham, and he says that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Remember that? And Jesus is now saying, through my death and resurrection, you're going to see that happen. In fact, you're going to be part of that happening. It's interesting to remember and, and, and recognize here that the church of God is not Australian, it's not American, it's not Israelite, it's not Shell Harborian, it's nothing like that. What Jesus has done through his death and resurrection is the news that all people of all nations need to hear. All cultures, all languages, all tribes, we all need to hear it. It's God's desire that through the gospel of Jesus, all nations would be blessed. And again, if you flick forward to Acts, it's exactly what you see happening in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit arrives and all of a sudden these scared and fearful and doubting disciples uh, become bold, multilingual missionaries sharing the gospel with everybody who has come into Jerusalem. And by the end of the first century, Christianity had reached well beyond Jesus' own homeland. And the fact that you are sitting here today 
The fact that I'm standing here today is testimony to the fact that God has been faithful in carrying this mission out. And I would probably want to throw in that if you go back to the doubts and the uncertainties that we all sort of recognise that we felt just ten minutes ago, just think for a second about the world and the way it is right now. The gospel has gone out to all nations and we are the fruit of it. God has been faithful and he will continue to be. And if you look forward, Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 tells us how this world will end. And it says, I looked, there before me was a great multitude, no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So this work has been going on for 2,000 years and it will continue to happen until Jesus returns. And whatever doubts and fears we may have, we can stand in the confidence that God will be faithful and He will do it. And He's asking us to be a part of it. There will be that great multitude and that is how the story of this world will end and it's how the next world will begin. And this last 2,000 years ought to give us enough reason to be confident in that. Which maybe raises some of the big challenges or questions of this passage, I think. See, what is our part in this? These instructions, I, I don't think they're individual instructions. We can, I think, go wrong if we start to go, Jesus is giving an individual mission to me. He's not. He's giving the mission to the church. But I'm a part of it, and so are you. And so we start to ask Christians, like, well, what are the best ministries that we can be doing as a church, as the people of God, to make disciples? And... Personally, how can I be involved in that? There's a range of things that we could think about here, and it's dangerous even to almost suggest things, but I would encourage you today to go away and go, how can I be part, how can I continue to be a part of this mission of God? First of all, can I be praying for it? Can I be hearing about what God's doing through the world to encourage me in it? Can I look for opportunities? Are there ways in which I can be praying for Shell Harbour City Anglican Church's ministries? Are there ways I can be praying for other churches? Are there things that I can be involved with here? Is there a scripture class that maybe I've been thinking about helping out with and and maybe I really should pray about that? Maybe we start small. Um, Could you have the courage to tell a colleague at work when they say to you on Monday morning, what did you get up to on the weekend, to go, oh, well, I went to church. It it actually can take some guts to do that, I know. Uh, But maybe we start small. Maybe we go big. This does say, go to all nations. Maybe God's been working in your heart for the last year or years or decade to go, He may have a place for you somewhere else. He may have a particular role for you and it may not be here. We want to be a church that continues to send. Where is it that God would have you send? So think small, think big. Jesus said, all nations. There may be places in the world right now, there may be places in our own community. Where right now the gospel is just a mustard seed, but where God is going to be growing something magnificent. Where would he be using you in all of that process? Where is he using me? Maybe an application of this passage is to come to God with that terribly brave and scary prayer. God, I understand the mission and I want to be part of it. Where do you want me? Where do you want me? But we're not finished on the burger, because all burgers do have a bottom part of it. And if you try to eat the burger without the bottom, it's, uh, it's a disaster. And I think if you attempt to understand this passage without the last verse, it's still a disaster. So, let's have a look. The reason it'll be a disaster, by the way, is if this passage stopped there, I think we will pretty soon end up disillusioned and defeated. 
We've been told we have the authority to do it, and we've been told what to do, but we'll soon be overwhelmed if we think that we have to do it on our own steam. Or we'll actually become proud, because our youth group becomes full of people, and we invite them and they come, or our crew group is flourishing, or even the, even the, the seats in the church are full. We think, yeah, we're doing a great job of this, aren't we, God? That's not how the passage ends. Look how it does end. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the uh, to the very end of the age. What holds this burger together is this. See, in the middle is the mission: make disciples of all nations. On the front of that, we have the great confidence that Jesus has all authority, and giving us hope and assurance and power is the promise that Jesus will be with us always to the end of the age. It's critical. If we come back to some of the negative sorts of feelings that we identified at the start of this, our doubts and our uncertainties, I would say that verse puts new hope in it for us. The mission isn't about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He has the authority to send us. He has given us the message of salvation and he has promised that he will never leave us. Not in your workplace, not in your family, not in your school. He will never leave you. And we dropped in on Acts a couple of times today. Here's the last one. Um, You see this again play out in Acts chapter 2. The disciples, as I said before, are standing around in Jerusalem waiting for this mysterious gift that Jesus has promised he would send them. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit arrives, the power and the presence of God. And they are able to undertake a task that I suspect an hour before that they could not have imagined that they would be doing. Why? Because Jesus is still present with them in his spirit and he is still present with the church today and he is still present with us today if we have faith in him. They're not alone. Jesus hasn't abandoned them. And if you read the book of Acts, which I'd encourage you to do, that is one of the shining themes. It's not the acts of the disciples. It's the acts of the risen Jesus. He's the one who continues to work through them and that's what he will continue to do through us. A few chapters before this in Matthew 24... Jesus overtly told his disciples, I don't think they could have understood it at the time, but he said to them that they will go through persecution and that the kingdom would be proclaimed to all nations until the end comes. Which is where we finish. We live between this commission of Jesus and the time that he returns. That's the age that we live in. And everything has changed, and yet nothing has changed. Everything has changed because the kingdom has been preached. It's been preached to many nations. Millions of people have heard the gospel of Jesus and they've put their faith in him and their lives have been changed. More people call Jesus Lord in the world today than any other God or faith. And yet, nothing has changed. In other ways, nothing's changed at all. We have the same authority driving us, the authority of Jesus. Um, Jesus is alive The mission is still the same. We're still seeking to put him on display in our lives for our community, in your workplace, in your class, wherever it is, with your words and with your actions. And nothing has changed because Jesus is still with us. He hasn't abandoned us. The culture didn't get too hot for Jesus and he's bailed out and gone, you're on your own now. No way. He's still with us. His spirit is as powerful and as active and as effective as it ever has been. And so we have everything to hope for and nothing to fear. And we have the joy of knowing that God in his kindness and wisdom is planning to use us for this mission. That's where we land. But there is one more thing. You know, if I come back to the B column for a second, 
reluctant to, if I come back to it, the reality is that I told people about that product because I was passionate about it. The reason I shared it was because I was passionate about it. I had seen, or thought I'd seen, the benefit of that in my lives, and I wanted other people to know and experience what I had known and experienced. Now, our capacity to serve in this mission, I think, will be determined by how much we really want others to know what we have known. And from that, we are going to have to continue to know the joy of Jesus ourselves. I think the challenge for me, and maybe for you too, is that over time that can drop. And so you actually find yourself struggling in the mission because you've really stopped having the same passion that other people would even want to know Jesus. It might be uncomfortable to say that to people and you feel like you're a bad disciple or something if you do, but I'm going to say it. And maybe the answer then isn't to beat ourselves up and go, right, I'm going to muster up the courage and I'm going to talk to that guy at work and I'm going to invite my friend to crew and I'm going to give a book to this person. I don't feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it because I know I have to do it. Look, they're all good things to do, but the answer might not be to beat yourself up into doing it. You'll be able to push yourself a little further down the line by making yourself do stuff. What we probably most need to do is come back to dealing with our own hearts and go, what can I be doing to try to feed my own faith so that that joy and that desire and that commitment to serve Jesus is flowing out of me naturally in the same way that me wanting to share bee pollen with people just came out of me naturally. I didn't get up in the mornings and beat myself up going, I've got to give this to someone today. I wanted to. And so maybe a place to end is to ask that question. What can I still be doing to grow in my love for Jesus, to grow in my appreciation for what he's done for me? And that's where you come back to some basics, isn't it? You spend time, read one of the Gospels. If you haven't for a while, reacquaint yourself with Jesus. Uh, find a great, encouraging Christian book and read it. Talk to your Christian friends and go, look, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. Pray for me. What can we do in that way? Because if we can get our own hearts soaked in the grace of Jesus, I suspect that's going to start dripping out of us all over the place and we will be effective disciples in this mission. So I'm going to pray that that will be the case. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the chance to look at it today. We've been challenged by the mission that you have given us, but we've also been encouraged that you have authority and we pray that you would strengthen our fearful hearts in a culture that would uh, that would seek to tell us that we have no place in following you or sharing you. And we pray that you would encourage uh, our fearful hearts with the news that you are with us and that you will never abandon us. We thank you for the thousands of years of testimony that you have been faithful in this and we look forward to you continuing to save people until you return. And we pray that you would use us as a church locally, as a church globally, and as individuals in the places that you have planted us, that disciples might be made, that you would help us to put your love and grace and salvation on display in our lives, that others would be drawn to you and find hope and life through the cross. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.